0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A woman is kidnapped by two extremely violent offenders, but despite her traumatic experience, her story is extraordinary. This is the Alison Botha story. Hello, Amy, and hello, listeners.
1: How's it going today, Megan?
0: Well, it's going great, Amy. But I have to say, now that the break is here and we have a slowdown in our schedules, and as I put you on the spot on the air, I'm going to say, I hope you're going to come visit me and we can record in person. Yes. What do you think about that? That is a big yes. Oh, okay, great. I was like, oh, I'll put her on. I'll put her on the spot on the air. I would love to. Um, I thought you'd never ask, Megan. Oh, good. Okay. You know what? I love when you guys visit too, and we do a happy hour with our supporters possibly. You know, being in the same room is kind of fun. I know it's my fault, by the way, for moving so far away. (laughs) So next time we move, I'll make sure it's a lot closer. All right. Let me move on to discuss today's episode. It's actually been on my list for a very long time, but due to the horrific nature of this crime, I wasn't sure I was able to handle it. But it has been a case suggested by several listeners on the Suggested Case Forum and via Instagram. So I decided I am ready to delve into it. However, I would like to give a warning to our listeners about this episode. Normally, we try very hard not to get into the details of violence on the show uh, because we want to focus on the victim's story and the theory and the explanations. But unfortunately, Amy, for this case, I do have to be specific about the details of the assault. And you and the listeners will understand why at the end. But again, a trigger warning about violence here for our listeners. If hearing very specific details about a violent assault is not for you, we suggest you skip ahead a little on this episode and then join us during the discussion. But the silver lining in this case is that while it's terrible, there is also a remarkable outcome. Let's meet the subject of our episode today. Alison Botha. Allison was born on September 22, 1967, in Port Elizabeth, South Africa, a major port located in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. It is known for its many beaches, whale and dolphin sightings, and other rare birds and wildlife.
1: All right, put it on the list, Megan. And
0: it's, it's quite beautiful. Allison's parents divorced when she was just 10 years old, and Allison primarily lived with her mother and her brother following the divorce. A seemingly normal child, Allison attended the Collegiate High School for Girls in Port Elizabeth, serving as a head girl of the school. Head girls and boys of collegiate schools act as public representatives, as well as holding positions of leadership inside and outside the school itself. Is that like a headmaster? No, because a headmaster is an adult position. These are, they are just considered leaders of their school. So it's only very good students that are granted these positions, responsible ones, ones who are willing to also advocate for the school and be representatives in public. Our version of head girls and boys might be that of like a student body representative. Mm -hmm. So Allison was responsible. She was a responsible young woman and she was very smart. But according to Allison, she really didn't have any specific career aspirations. Now, while she initially did a few semesters at her local university for secretarial studies, Allison decided she needed a break from school and she left to travel abroad for around four years before returning back to South Africa. The now 27 years old Allison found an apartment and a job working as an insurance broker when she returned. Amy, her life was that of a very normal woman in her 20s, just establishing herself and enjoying life back at home. On December 18th, 1994, Allison had brought her laundry over to her friend's house to wash before she and their friend group enjoyed a lovely day at the beach. Afterwards, they all went back to Allison's apartment to play board games and have dinner. And then Allison drove back to her friend's house to drop her friend off because her friend didn't have a ride and to pick up her clean laundry. But by the time she got home, it was almost 3 a.m. And her usual parking spot had been taken. I don't think this was an assigned spot. I think these were spots nearer to her apartment building. And I think the close one wasn't available. So unfortunately, Allison had to park further down the street than she would have liked at that late hour. When she turned to get her laundry from the passenger seat, her car door opened and a man put a blade to Allison's neck, telling her to move over.
1: That's my biggest fear. Anytime I'm in the car at night by myself, this is what I think is going to happen. It's one of my fears as well. Yeah, I'm obsessively locking the doors.
0: Terrified, Allison did as she was told, and she moved over into the passenger seat. The man took the wheel of Allison's car and began to drive, telling her that he didn't want to hurt her, but he needed to use her car. In later interviews, Allison explained that she chose to believe that this man didn't mean her harm as he asked her questions and spoke to her almost normally. But she was alarmed when the man who said his name was Clinton stopped to pick up another strange man just a few minutes later. Just gets worse. Yeah. Allison said when she saw the second man's face in the rearview mirror as she was still in the front, his eyes in particular, she just realized at that moment she was in serious danger. The driver took the three into a dark, secluded area off the highway littered with sand, barbecue ash, and broken bottles. Allison hadn't realized why until he asked Allison, the driver, if she was going to fight, to which she said no. Unfortunately, the two men took turns raping Allison on the side of the highway, but the assault did not stop there. One of the men also strangled Allison so severely that she went in and out of consciousness, causing her to lose control of bodily functions and urinate. The two men then stabbed Allison in her abdomen and pelvic area over 35 times before slashing her throat
1: a total of 16 times. Oh my goodness. There's no way someone can survive this.
0: Well, you wouldn't think so. And although Allison said that she could not feel it, she could see the hand moving across her throat back and forth. And when they got up to leave, one of the perpetrators said, do you think she's dead? And the other man responded, no one can survive that. But what they didn't know was that Allison was still alive and she regained consciousness. Allison could not feel the pain of her wounds, but she could hear her breath just badly breathing through her very damaged windpipe and trachea. They had cut through the trachea. She said that she could feel herself dying, but she also knew that she couldn't let these violent men hurt anyone else. And amazingly, she had the wherewithal to write their names in the dirt where her damaged body lay. Wow. I know. uh, It's incredible because remember, the one man said his name was Clinton. That Mm -hmm. was not the correct name. And when they thought that she was no longer alive, they used each other's proper names. She wanted to live, and despite her wounds, she managed to roll over and crawl. But as she did, she realized that her intestines were spilling out of her stab wounds.
1: How does one not go into shock? I don't know that I would have had the ability to keep going. This is incredible.
0: I I don't know either, Amy. Her shirt was crumpled up beside where the men had thrown it during the assault, and they left it there. And so Allison grabbed her shirt and used it to basically push her intestines back inside and hold herself together. This is incredible thinking, resilience. So she was crawling, realizing that she wasn't getting far. So she somehow managed to get to her feet. I have no idea how. As she begins walking, she realizes that she can't quite see right. She's not seeing straight. So she felt her throat where had she remember where she had been slashed so many times mm-hmm. and she realized much to her horror that her head was falling backwards between her shoulders because she'd been nearly decapitated
1: how is this victim still alive
0: well realize this now she had to hold her own head up with one hand and her intestines in with the other as she struggled to make it to the road Wow. So you really need to know how severe these injuries are to know what she had to do to survive them. Miraculously, she made it to the highway, though she can't remember her final steps. She said she felt like she was carried somehow, which she was not, but she made
1: it. This case so far reminds me of Mary Vincent.
0: Because of the extreme horrific
1: injuries, right? And the survival, but the survival mode. Yeah. And she was able to get herself somehow to a roadway as well. Now, is this the same as in Mary's case where people pass her because it's so alarming, her injuries?
0: Unfortunately, that's a very good question. There was a car that passed by, stopping to look at her, but offering no help and then speeding off. That was the first car. By this point, Allison knew that she was going to die. But a second car appeared and the driver got out of the car and ran towards her. Thank God. Yes, The driver was 20-year-old Tian Ellard, a veterinary student who took off his shirt to help cover Allison's wounds. And he lay in the road with her, holding her hand and talking to Allison while his friend called emergency services. Though he called several times, or though his friend called several times, and they were not that far away from this town, emergency services took over an hour and a half to get there. Yes,
1: How was that? It is
0: unknown why they took this long. Wow. But Allison survived and Tian went to the hospital with her, staying with her and holding her hand until she went into surgery. Covered in black ash and blood head to toe, her eyes completely red with hemorrhaging. Allison's injuries were the most horrific doctors had ever seen. Her trachea was severed and her intestines contaminated since they'd been outside of her body. Mm. The ash, the, the dirt, everything else on them. Her pelvis was also so badly damaged, the original doctor didn't think she'd be able to have children after this sustaining this attack. But Allison had a will to live, and there were some talented doctors at that hospital determined to save Allison no matter what it took. Though Allison's trachea was severed and abdomen cut, miraculously, none of the injuries had pierced arteries or vital organs. And one step at a time, the doctors managed to save Allison, quite literally
1: putting her back together. Wow. But I wonder what type of recovery she had to go through. Physical, I'm sure the mental recovery is the worst in this situation. I think both were for her.
0: Initially, while she lay in the hospital, a breathing tube inserted in her windpipe to help her breathe after surgery. The police visited her. They had a photo album of possible suspects, and I think they had some suspects in mind. And when they showed Alice in the photos, she pointed to her assailants and she wrote down their names since she couldn't speak due to the tube in her lungs. She remembered their names? Absolutely. Wow. Wow. So the thing is, while that should have served as a strong identification, and it did, unfortunately, the police said that a verbal identification would solidify it. And so the doctors would have to remove the tube if she needed to speak. But they feared that it would really jeopardize her trachea wound. And they explained that to Allison. But she wanted them to take it out. She wanted to make the verbal
1: identification. You would think they'd be able to make an exception. What about for people who can't speak like there's got to be. No, they they said they could make an exception and they said it would
0: stand. They just said, if possible, it would be even stronger. So she made the the verbal identification through her writing. Allison consented to have the tube removed, and she even remarked how good it felt when they took the tube out. And when they took the tube out, she said her attackers names out loud for the first time, Franz and Tians The police were quite familiar with these two vicious men and were able to quickly apprehend them. Let's begin with Franz. Franz Ditois, a 26-year-old with a wife and child, was raised the son of a police officer in a Christian home. Though there were no reported hardships in his rearing, Franz set fire to a schoolhouse when he was in eighth grade and was expelled from school.
1: Yeah, that's not a good sign.
0: No, it's not a good sign. Arson at a young age is definitely a red flag. He also did not do well in school, even though he probably could have. He just didn't put in the effort. After this expulsion, his parents moved with him to another town where Franz met a girl who claimed to be a witch and his interest in Satanism began.
1: Yeah, that would be that would also be a red flag.
0: Franz then enrolled in the South African Army, I think at the urging of his parents, but was quick to be discharged. He married and had a daughter, but didn't spend any time with them and later left both his wife and his child. During this time, his parents again tried to help him find a few jobs, but he was quickly fired over and over again. In at least one instance, he was caught stealing from his employers. All right. So his
1: background is exactly what you would expect of a violent offender. Yes, exactly.
0: By 1993, Franz had married for a second time and fathered a second child. He was with them at the time of the offense, and while Franz was not incapable, he just did not seem interested in mainstream society. His accomplice, Tienz Kruger, 19 at the time of the attack, had a very different childhood experience. His father was a career criminal, and he was in and out of prison for his son's entire life. His mother had gone on to have several relationships and marry a few times. And she had several abusive husbands who were also reportedly violent towards Tien's. So he was not a happy child. And with not much to offer the opposite sex, he reportedly came to hate women because he was rejected so often by them.
1: Megan, this is like textbook right here, these two, right? Yeah. Tien's
0: and Franz had only met a few months before Allison's attack in a Shabine which is an unlicensed and illegal place where Franz sold alcohol. Mm-hmm. So after getting rejected and fired so many times, he simply decided to sell alcohol illegally.
1: Megan, these two remind me a lot of the Cheshire murders and the two had met at like a halfway house and they both had very similar backgrounds to these two.
0: Yes, I don't know why I didn't think of that. That's very true. Yes, I can see the parallels, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So as I said, the police were very familiar with this violent duo and they had no trouble finding them and putting them under arrest. Now, while Franz was initially brought in and charged with attempted murder, he was absolutely shocked. Because, get this, Amy, he asked specifically why he was being charged with
1: attempted murder. Interesting. Do you understand? Yeah, because he was like, there's no way that that victim survived. Exactly. And you can imagine his utter disbelief Mm -hmm. when he
0: asked that question and the police turned to him and said, because Allison is alive. At that statement, it was clear he knew it was over for him. And believe it or not, Amy, he buckled quickly. Franz actually took off the ring on his finger, still bloody, and handed it to the detective who interviewed him, saying that it was Allison's. Let me guess, these two are going to turn on each other? No. Surprisingly, Tians also admitted his guilt shortly after the arrest, also apparently completely shocked that Allison had survived. Meanwhile, Allison remained in the hospital where doctors tended to her healing wounds. But it was a very long road to recovery, as you had uh, mentioned before. She later described the healing process as pain all the time for a long time, physical pain. But around four months after the assault, when she was able to, the police also asked if she would come back to the police station and identify her attackers in person via a lineup to absolutely solidify the case against them now amy i don't know if you know this because i don't think either one of us know much about south african policing but at the time it was standard practice for a victim in south africa to pick out their offender face to face but this would have been horrifying for allison to be in the same room so the police introduced a new way to make this identification in south africa by using a one-way mirror
1: That's so interesting. So this is the case that changed their identification procedures?
0: According to the research that I found, it was. It's incredible. And though Franz and Tians tried to alter their appearances, they looked different. Allison picked them out right away. And just six months later, trial would begin. When the trial against Franz and Tians began on June 12th, 1995, there were many witnesses and plenty of evidence against them including two witnesses who were prior victims of the men. One woman of just 20 years old testified that she was sexually assaulted by Franz, but not Tien's. Hmm. A second witness testified that she was sexually assaulted while pregnant by both men. Her testimony about the trauma was heart-wrenching. A third almost victim Testified that just two days before Allison's attack, she was driving in her car around twelve thirty a.m. and had stopped to park. But noticing two men who scared her and one who placed his hand on her car door, she quickly locked her doors and drove away. A move that likely saved her life.
1: My God, I would have driven to like the next state. I would have
0: been so scared. Yes, and she quickly recognized these men as Franz and Tians. Okay, hey, these two were on the hunt. Yes, these two were on the hunt, mm-hmm. and realized they they had also only known each other for a couple of months, which means that they attacked at least one woman together in that Mm -hmm. short time, tried to attack a second that we know of who reported them and then attacked Allison. That's in a four month span. Thank
1: God. Thank God she survived. It's, It's miraculous that she survived. And to think about how many lives she potentially saved by getting these two behind bars. That's exactly right, Amy. Exactly the thought that I had.
0: So the worst part about this whole thing, or maybe one of the worst parts, I mean, there's a lot of terrible parts here, but Tians and Franz had been arrested for this assault on this pregnant woman, but they were out on bail. Uh, bail is one of those areas that, you know, is so conflicting for me. In this instance, of course, I would have liked to seen these guys detained. I think their histories both warranted it. They were clearly dangerous individuals, not just based on the charge of the crime, but their histories. Mm-hmm. After the other victims testified, Allison told her story, one that most in the courtroom knew, but hearing from Allison herself made quite the impact on everyone who listened. I'm
1: sorry, Megan, did she make a full physical recovery by this point? She had made a mostly
0: full physical recovery. Yes, her physical recovery was somewhat miraculous, although her emotional recovery would be longer. And though she said that the pain in her abdomen did persist and, and still to this day does, she does have pain there. Wow. Yes. Yes. So Franz took the stand on his own behalf, saying that he was a Satanist at trial. And he even brought in a pastor while he was in jail to make a show of exercising his demons.
1: Why wouldn't these two just take a plea? Were they offered a plea?
0: I'm not sure if they were offered a plea. I don't know the system
1: in South Africa enough to really know.
0: I think that they were hoping for mitigating factors here at Mm -hmm. trial. They Remember, they had confessed to the crime. Yeah,
1: they're not denying.
0: No, I think the point of this trial is more like a sentencing trial Mm -hmm. to see what level sentence they would get and how much consideration they would be afforded. Got it. So, you know, this claim of Satanism and being possessed by demons did not work in the court. Although Franz did say that he was sorry for what he had done to Allison, but he blamed the devil for his crimes, and he described them without any emotion. Tians did not testify, not surprisingly. Again, I don't think they had much of a defense other than to look for mitigating circumstances to lessen their sentences. Mm-hmm. But that was not successful. The jury found them guilty of all charges, attempted murder, kidnapping, and rape. And the sentence was life, as the death penalty was no longer allowed at that time in South Africa.
1: Would that even be eligible for the death penalty, given that it was an attempted murder? He survived. I think they would have been eligible, yes. Wow.
0: Okay. Franz got three life terms, whereas Tians received 25 years for the sexual assault of the pregnant victim and a life sentence for Allison's attempted murder. So the prosecution tried these cases together.
1: So it sounds like South Africa has similar punishments to us here in America, because I know a lot of countries are not as punitive, but it sounds like rightfully so. They were very, they threw the book at these guys.
0: Yes. Just hold on to that because you might see a slight difference. But yes, I would say in terms of the severity of the crimes and punishment, Mm -hmm. similar. Yes. Mm -hmm. The judge put in his notes and his opinion that these two should never receive parole and that he would have considered imposing death if this were an option. Mm -hmm. When Franz left the courtroom, he punched a wall shouting out, well, here we go. F you all. So much for remorse, huh, Amy?
1: I'm assuming he actually said the word and didn't say F you, right?
0: That's correct, Amy. He did actually say the word. Now, turning back to Allison, she had a tremendous amount of physical and emotional healing to do. And after trial, she didn't know what to do to move on. She moved back in with her mother and had a hard time caring about anything at this point. She was severely depressed. Blaming her attackers for her inability to pick up the pieces and for her deep depression.
1: Uh, I'm assuming she was receiving mental health treatment.
0: I assume so too, but I don't know how extensive her mental health treatment was at that time. I know that later on she also received treatment. But she got an invitation at some point after a couple months to speak at the Rotary Club And for her, that was kind of life changing. She appreciated having a voice, a platform to tell her story and to kind of get it out. And she felt the need to tell her story, to share it. She felt that it was part of her healing process. And so she began taking on more speaking engagements. In fact, she became a full time speaker, Amy, traveling all over the world to share her story, taking what happened to her and using it to help
1: others. I find it so incredible that victims of these violent crimes can do that because I'm not sure that I'd be able to. I don't know if I'd ever want to talk about it.
0: Yeah, no, I think it was for her an outlet for her healing. But yes, I I completely understand. Allison taught methods to others to overcome trauma and everyday problems. She called it her ABC philosophy, attitude, belief and choice. Allison subsequently wrote a book, I Have Life, and her story was made into a documentary named Allison in 2016. I watched the documentary for this film. It was one hour and it was a mix of documentary with dramatizations and reenactments. I thought it was pretty powerful. Unbelievably, one of her assailants heard about the movie, Amy, and wanted to interview for it. So listen to this. Franz asked to participate in the documentary, but in return for his participation, he wanted two things. First, a written letter of forgiveness from Allison. And second, a portion of the profits from the film, Allison's book sales, and her speaking engagements, saying that he believed her success story in
1: life was because of him. Please tell me this was denied wholeheartedly.
0: Wholeheartedly. His request was declined. Wow. Allison wound up getting married and had two successful pregnancies, both boys, which is the next miracle in this case. Hmm. And would you believe, Amy, that the assisting doctor to deliver one of her boys was her angel, Tian Ellard, the man who saved her on the road that faithful night? What,
1: he was in OBG?
0: So he went on to become a doctor and to practice. Remember, he wanted to become a veterinarian. He was so inspired and moved by his experience with Allison that he went on to practice medicine with humans and not animals.
1: Isn't that an incredible turn of events? I was going to ask you if they were still in touch because a lot of times in these stories, the two people become very close. That's incredible. They did,
0: yes. A bond forever. Allison has survived and thrived, but recently, Allison has had to endure another
1: unbelievable turn in her case. Please tell me that these guys did not get out of prison.
0: Just a few months ago in 2023, both Franz and Tians were granted parole. It was a shock to Allison and everyone involved. Just so you know, she was made aware of, I don't remember which one, but she was made aware of one of their parole hearings. They had come up for parole a couple of times. But the second one, I think it was Tian's. She found out about his release in the media, from the media. She was not even notified. That's awful. The two men now in their 40s and 50s are residing somewhere under supervision in the community for the rest of their lives. They're on lifetime parole.
1: Is she provided protection? I'm sure she lives in fear.
0: She does live in fear. She was very upset, and I don't know if she's provided any protection. I don't think so. I think the protection is supposed to be that they're under close supervision, the most intense form of supervision for the rest of their lives.
1: How long did they serve?
0: 28 years, but Amy, again, they are in their 40s and 50s, and I believe these men are the most the violent kind, and I don't know that change at all was possible. My thoughts are with Allison, who I know will survive this news because she is an incredible survivor, but who should never have had to, in my humble opinion. And I'm also concerned for all the other women who might come into contact with these perpetrators. Especially, Amy, since South Africa has a long history of gender-based violence that vastly surpasses any other nation in the world with their levels of violence against women being commonly referred to as a plague. I don't know if you knew this, but in the first quarter of 2022, over 10,000 rapes were reported, making it the highest in the world. And that's only reported. We know rapes are very underreported. Exactly. According to the World Health Organization, a woman is killed every three hours in South Africa, five times higher than the global average.
1: Now, is this a result of domestic violence or random attacks? Do we know?
0: It's both. Uh, Let me just say that the issue has also further been exacerbated uh, since the pandemic, which is similar to other countries. But because of the high numbers there, it's it's already more exigent. And though the South African president has condemned gender-based violence and set aside activism days to help with the issue, it's not nearly enough. It's not getting to the root cause of this problem. Specific education is really needed about the root cause of this problem. These are really, you know, structural issues. There needs to be a more holistic recognition of female equality to kind of level the inequality between males and females in South Africa and the harmful effects of this type of violence. There needs to be more information about this to facilitate real change in the country. I think it's kind of looked at, yes, it's great that the president acknowledged it, but it's not meaningful to facilitate change and to have these numbers reduced? I bring this up before we get into theories. Also, Amy, to provide some cultural context for our discussion of Franz and Tian's, I thought it would help facilitate our discussion of theory. So let me break down the theory here. Allison's attackers were both extremely violent men whose traits both, I think, indicate severe antisocial personality disorder. There's more to this though, right? Because they both seem to have a disdain for women. And as Allison recalls, One of them specifically said that he was trying to mutilate her reproductive organs.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: So this is kind of two-pronged then. While they were... Attempting to murder Allison so that she couldn't go to the police. Remember, they had been reported and they knew this time they couldn't leave uh, their victim alive. It was also a form of femicide, which unfortunately, based on the cultural context that I just provided, is not altogether unfitting in South Africa.
1: Is that considered a hate crime in South Africa, crime against women? I know it depends on the country.
0: I'm not sure. I mean, it wasn't Mm -hmm. charged this way in her case, but it's possible that it exists and it just wasn't charged this way. I don't know how much evidence there was also to that main point. It also seems likely that had they not been apprehended, Franz and Tians would have gone on to become sexually sadistic serial killers. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned that, right? How many lives do we think that she saved?
1: Yep. I definitely do not believe they would have stopped there.
0: So this is probably evident for their in their proclivity for violence, their attempted murder, their lack of remorse. They have all the indicators here, so I'm not going to spend much time on this. But I will say that team serial killers are rare, but not as rare as you might think. In fact, because there's this idea that serial killers kill alone, right? We usually hear about the lone killers like Bundy and Gacy, but about 15 to 20 percent of serial killers are team killers. That's a, probably a higher number than you would have thought. In the cases where there are uh, team offenders, Mm -hmm. there's usually a dominant one. And in this case, it was clearly Franz. Mm -hmm. It seemed that Tien's was the younger follower, but equally as violent. You have two men here who offended on their own, but together a terrifying type of violence emerged that would have been much worse had they not encountered Allison. Finally, did the system get it right? And yes, you know, I did cover a little bit about the system here in terms of South Africa. The thing about life imprisonment in South Africa, Amy, is that lifers come up for parole after 25 years. And that was the case with these offenders. They were granted parole after 28 years. Mm -hmm. Now, before you had asked, is this similar to our system? So what do you think? Is this similar? I don't think they would
1: have gotten out on parole. Well, then again, I don't know. What were these guys doing? Do we know anything about their behavior in prison or anything? Were they getting treatment?
0: I don't know what they were doing in prison, Amy. I don't know much about their record. I do know that Franz was engaging in relationships and in fact, he had a fiance of some type. You hear about these cases where extremely violent offenders, especially serial killers, have females, have relationships, have wives mm-hmm. outside of the prison. So I don't know much so about his actual record. Mm-hmm. But it did make me think here, of you know the LIFERS program that we work in the New Jersey system, And the lifers do, uh, some some of them come up for parole after 25 years.
1: Yes, that's why it's hard to say without knowing exactly what they did because we both have met people who are incarcerated who very much deserve parole. They deserve a second chance after 25 years. But the heinousness of this crime for me is...
0: We know several offenders who've been paroled after 25, 30 years. None of them had a record that in any way mirrors this. No. None of them didn't have remorse. None of them were... Um, sexually predatory. The crimes I think that we
1: know for people who've been released are vastly different from this. Yeah, it was way too heinous. These two should not be in society given the heinousness of their offense.
0: These men should never have been paroled, in my opinion. I have no idea who would have granted them release. And I'll tell you what, I'd be very scared if I had been the one to make that decision. I would not be able to sleep at night. I mean, I wouldn't have made that decision. Mm. The thing about certain career criminals And especially ones like sexually sadistic, violent predators, is that there are some who cannot be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. There are some that it serves society to have them removed from society because of the extreme threat they pose. And I feel bad for Allison in this case that she will now have to wonder about her safety. Is she truly safe? Mm -hmm. What I will end with is saying, I sincerely hope that these men have been rehabilitated, Amy. I hope that I am wrong in this case. I hope the parole board was right. I don't want to be right. But I do have real concerns for women and others in society around these two perpetrators.
1: I think it bears emphasis that Victims need to be made aware. They need to be part of the process of early release and parole, especially in a case like this where it was such a violent attack.
0: Absolutely. Allison should have been notified, and I hope that they will keep her and the other victims notified if anything changes with the status of these two offenders. Okay, thank you to our listeners for bringing this crime to our attention. In the end, it really is a remarkable story of survival and what Alison's managed to do with her life is nothing short of extraordinary. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include News 24, the film Allison, All That's Interesting, World Health Organization, CrimeLibrary.org, and the National Institute of Health.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s.